Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Kampoff, and I'm grateful that you're here, ready to listen to Scott Welly. Now, the goal of these interviews is to learn from the world's best leaders, athletes, coaches, and consultants, all about the topic of mindset to help us reach our potential or be high performers in our field or our sport. And today I interview Scott Welly, who is a number one international best-selling author, speaker, peak performance strategist, and founder of Outperform the Norm. At Outperform the Norm, he trains high achievers and athletes to remove their self-imposed limitations, increase their confidence, and accomplish more than they ever thought possible. He has authored eight books, isn't that outstanding, has a master's degree in sports psychology, and definitely practices what he preaches. He's completed five Ironman triathlons, 27 marathons, and what I think is the unthinkable 100-mile ultra marathon. And in this interview, we talk about several different things that I know you're going to enjoy. We talk about what it means to outperform the norm, why we should play to win instead of play not to lose, how our self-limiting beliefs are a governor of our potential, and why you must do it now to build momentum. And he provides some insights that I think are fascinating uh, in terms of the physical and mental recovery after completing his 100-mile race. And here are my, two of my favorite quotes. Um, he says this, We all have a norm or a current standard. How can you outperform your norm? And then in our, in our discussion about playing to lose and playing not to win in the difference, we talked about how playing to lose is giving into the fear, doubt, and anxiety, whereas playing to win is choosing vision, potential, and action. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, you can head over to Twitter and you can find uh, Scott and I both over there. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought about this interview and what stood out to you. My Twitter handle is at mentally underscore strong and Scott is at Scott Welly. Now, before we head to the interview, I'd like to read comment and rating from iTunes. This one is from Mark Russell Phillips. He says, it's really amazing how much practical information Cinder provides in each episode. Her advice is based on both her life experience and solid research. This is a great podcast to help each of us improve our performance in every facet of our lives. Hey, thank you so much, Mark Russell Phillips, for your comment over there on iTunes. And if you could do one of two things, if you could head over to iTunes or Stitcher Radio, provide a comment like Mark Russell Phillips did, I'll read yours next week. Again, or if you could share this podcast with a friend or two on social media or just by, you know, the cool thing is now on on the iPhone, you can just click on the podcast episode and look at the description and there is a way right there to, to rate and comment on your favorite podcasts. Have an outstanding week and without further ado, let's bring on Scott Welly. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. I'm really excited to talk to you this new year. So thank you so much for joining us on the High Performance Mindset Podcast. 
Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it, Sandra. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, let's just jump in. I know uh, we've known each other for a, for a couple of years now, and I got to hear you speak about a month ago. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that and then sharing that with the listeners. So just tell us a little bit about your passion and what you do right now, Scott. Oh, well, I do a few different things right now. <laughs> I primarily... I am a speaker and a trainer and a consultant, and my background is actually very similar to yours, where my master's degree is in sports psychology. Uh, I'm a huge sports fan, and I take a lot of the principles that I learned from working with elite and high-level athletes, and I translate those to how business leaders can get better results in their own lives, as well as just how I think everyday people can enhance their own individual performance. Um, in kind of whatever way they're looking at doing that. So uh, primarily it's speaking and training and consulting. I do do some individual personal coaching for people. I've got a bunch of books out there, and some online products and programs and things like that. But, um, but yeah, primarily what fills me up and what I really have a passion for is speaking. Love it, love it. How did you kind of find speaking and consulting? Is like, tell us about your journey in terms of how did you find it and know that this is kind of what you were passionate about and that you wanted to move forward with in your career. <laughs> Well, it's actually been a really interesting transformation. And I mean, for the people, like I look at things just like Facebook and stuff. And for the people that I'm connected to, like that I went to high school with and different things like that, um, none of them can believe that I'm a quote unquote, let's just say motivational speaker because everybody knows what that is. Like no one can believe that I'm actually doing what I'm doing now because growing up in junior high and, and in grade school, I had a horrible stutter. And it developed really early in my life, and I spent a ton of time in speech therapy. And I was really shy. I was the kid that sat in the back of the room in class and just hoped that the teacher wouldn't call it in because I didn't want to answer and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class. And every time that I would have to do some type of speech, it was just literally, I mean, the most, uh, the worst experience most horrible thing that I could possibly ever be doing. <laughs> and then it was, it was literally just something that I kind of got over slowly over time. And then really as things evolved and, and I got a couple books out there and I never really set out where I was like, yes, I'm going to be a speaker. This is what, this is the path that I'm going to go down. I just happened to put a couple of books out there and then people found the books, read them, liked them, and then said, hey, will you come in and will you speak for this group? And I'd gotten a little bit more comfortable with it at that point. And then I just said, well, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come in and I'll speak. And then I just realized how good I felt, not only doing it, but how good I felt afterwards. And I just said, you know, this is something I'm going to have to stay with because it really feels like it's filling me up and really feels like it's giving me kind of the motivational juice that I need. So that's really how it came about. That's good. I think that you and I are really similar in, in terms of like, I didn't seek out to become a speaker either. You know, it's just sort of, you know, that you want to positively impact people. And I like your takeaway in terms of, you know, just following what feels you, fuels you and what gives you energy. So cool. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, I know one of your, you know, most popular books is Outperform the Norm. So tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about what you mean by out, Outperform the Norm. And especially I'm just thinking about in this new year, you know, people are probably thinking about, where they, what they want to do, their goals that they want to, you know, go after. So just tell us about how, what does outperform the norm mean? And what does that mean for us in terms of the new year? 
Well, I just, I think, I mean, the part that I'm most passionate about with Outperform the Norm is you can look at it a couple of different ways. You know, I can look at it like, okay, I'm going out and I'm running a marathon against Syndra and like, I want to beat you in that marathon, you know, so I can look at it as I want to outperform you like me against you. But I think the part that I'm really most passionate about, and I really hope what people get from this is that I think we all have a norm kind of as far as whatever your norm is, whatever your current standard is in any area of your life. Like I'll perform the norm. The book centers around the three sections of health, happiness, and high performance. And like, let's just take, you know, we all have standards in those three different areas. We have standards in health in terms of the way that we expect to look and feel and the amount of energy that we want to have and just basically how we take care of our stress and things on kind of a day-to-day basis. Happiness, we we have standards as far as how we manage our attitude and, and how we contribute, how we serve others and kind of the things that, that fill us up. And then high performance, which is a little bit more professional where it's, we have standards on what we expect to earn standards as far as our work ethic and, you know, standards as far as what we want to contribute professionally. And I just think if you look at outperforming the norm, you know, it's not my place to tell you what, your norm is or what outperforming should look like for you. But it's just, Mm -hmm. if you really look at kind of the landscape of those three things and, and just say, you know what, I would like to raise my game or I would like to outperform a little bit more in this one particular area. Okay. Well, you tell me what that means for you. Like, you know, does that mean that you're earning more professionally or does that mean you just show up with a little more positive attitude, you know, in terms of happiness? Or does that mean that, you know what, you're taking a little bit better care of yourself health-wise? Um, you know, it's, it's really individual and it's really about helping you just raise your own personal standards rather than, you know, me telling you, okay, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. It's completely individual. Mm, so it comes from within, you know, I think one of the things I remember when I heard you speak about a month ago, you know, I think you asked us like, what would it, what would it need to happen or what would need to happen for you to be an outperformer, right? Where you're just yeah. asking us to think about it. And I remember you talking a little bit about ego orientation versus mastery orientation. Tell mm-hmm. us how you think that connects to outperforming the norm, you know, for us individually. Yeah, well, that's really kind of what I started with is the ego orientation is, you know, basically you're looking out and, and I know that we have all outperformers that are listening to this right now, but if you look out at it, whether we're talking about business or coaching or if you're just an athlete or whatnot, I mean, and you look at outperformers, are we wired with a certain amount of competitive drive where let's just say you want a competitive edge, you want to gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace? I mean, yeah, I think we're all wired with a certain amount of that, but but I sometimes believe that if we're just looking too much kind of outside of ourselves and looking at what everyone else is doing. It's not always advantageous for us. I think sometimes we can get a lot more out of kind of looking inward and, you know, the looking outward is the ego orientation and looking inward is honestly just waking up and just saying, you know what, how can I be just a little bit, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better today, a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. You know, and when you kind of seek that growth, you know, that I'm, I'm sure you've talked about, you know, at some point, a, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, because it's, it's a huge thing these days. But when you just really look at it, you just say, you know, I'm, I'm driven by the pursuit of growth and the pursuit of, of mastery and not looking at struggle as a bad thing and really just looking at improving my own individual self, rather than always worried about being better than someone or kind of ahead of someone. I really think that's when the game changes. 
Absolutely. You know, and I think about my, one of my favorite quotes is an Eleanor Roosevelt quote, and she said, comparison is the thief of joy. <laughs> so just, yeah. just, just the idea of for us to thrive, for us to be high performers, we need to look inward and focus on growth and mastery. So but, uh, one of the things that I want to dive into deeper about, you know, some of the content that you share with your audiences or share in your coaching, but one of the questions mm-hmm. I want to ask you to start off before we even do that a little bit more in detail is tell us about a time that you failed and and what you learned from it and what it can help us learn, you know, related to your failure, how we can use that in our lives. What do you think? (laughs) Well, it's, it's it's actually very interesting that you phrase it that way uh, because I'll just take you back to kind of a blast from the past. Um, I've been an entrepreneur for a little bit more than three years. And before that, I had a full-time regional sales manager position. And I did that for about four or five years. And I'll never forget interviewing for that job, which was my last formal interview for their job. And, you know, we had, I was sitting down with the head of HR and she's asking her basic HR questions where she's like, tell me about a time in your life that you failed and you learned something from it. And I looked right at her and I said, I, I've never failed at anything in my life. And she literally looked back at me like I had three heads, you know, like what is wrong with you that you think you've never failed at something in your life? And then I just explained to her, you know, I don't honestly think we can fail at anything in our lives. Uh, I mean, the only way that you can ever fail at something is if you continually make a mistake and you don't learn from it. Absolutely. So that's why one of the, the things that I say to all of my clients, and one of the things I say in every single speech I give is uh, there is no failure, there's only feedback. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're continuing to look at it, and I think it's one of the most powerful things that we can all remember is that, you know what, I mean, we're all just kind of in this process of, of growth and mastery and trying to figure it out and trying to do it a little bit better than the last time we did it. And as long as we can look at just a kind of continual process of gaining feedback and to not look at it as like black and white, won or lost, succeeded or failed, you know, I think we're all going to be so much better off. So, I mean, if you want to tell me, or if you want me to tell you a lot of stories about all the mistakes I've made, I can definitely tell you that. But I will just tell you that as part of the kind of internal psychology that I've switched in my own head is to stop being so hard on myself and just stop looking at it as I've succeeded or I've failed because I think it can paralyze you if you're using that language to yourself. Mm, Absolutely. And we can be our own worst enemy. So how do you think, you know, Scott, when you think about just like how you, as part of your internal framework, you know, your, your beliefs that there is no failure, how do you think that's impacted how you approach your business as an entrepreneur, or, you know, when you think about the clients you've worked with, how do you think, you know, just using that mantra, if you will, you know, to, to help us be more free and not be so hard on ourselves? What do you think the benefits of that are? Well, I, I think it's all about taking action. You know, I think a lot of times what paralyzes people from taking action is the fear of failure and the fear of what, I mean, what could happen if you know, I'm not successful and if things don't go well. And because of that, they, they kind of sit back on the sidelines and, and they think they need to plan more. Or they need to just figure out a few more things before they take action. And you know what, I'm just uh, like, I'm not quite ready yet. And you know what, sometimes you just need to put yourself out there and you just need to do it. And as long as you look at, you know what, okay, even if I take some action, if I take a step, even if it's somewhat in the wrong direction, well, at least I moved forward versus like, I've never even given it a shot and I've, I've never even put myself out there so I think of 
I mean, all the different things that I've done professionally. I mean, I talked about it. It wasn't easy for me to, to write books. It wasn't easy for me to become a speaker. You know, I spoke about some of my own personal challenges with just getting over. A lot of your listeners probably know that public speaking is the most feared thing among Americans. You know, it's, it's, they really are fearful of getting up there in front of a big group and speaking in front of them. And I've certainly had my challenges that way. And I think every time either myself or my clients have really been just stuck and have not wanted to do something, it's usually because I call it playing not to lose instead of playing to win. And the playing not to lose is basically I'm trying to avoid or I'm fearing making a mistake or I'm, I'm trying to avoid that negative result versus I'm positively striving for this, this outcome that I want or I'm moving towards this thing that I desire. And it sounds like such a simple thing, but it's surprising how few people actually look at it like that. And as long as you're kind of consumed with, I guess, that fear of failure, that negativity, you know, that plane not to lose is not ever going to allow you to be as productive and take as much action as you're poss- poss- I mean, as you can possibly take. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think the benefits are if we really embrace the playing to win versus playing not to lose? I I mean, I think that's where um, the reality of it is, you know, who knows whether any of us are going to reach our potential in our lifetime. I mean, the reality of it is probably not, but we're all trying to trying to reach our potential, right? We're trying to put ourselves out there. And I think the benefit of it is you just can accomplish things that you probably never thought were possible because Mm -hmm. now you don't have these self-limiting beliefs. You don't, it's, it's another line that I use is self-limiting beliefs are a governor on your individual potential. And I believe that it is because when you have these beliefs of like, well, no, I mean, I'm afraid to do this or I can't do this because I wasn't born with that. It's like, well, now all of a sudden you're just governing what you're capable of and you're governing the actions you're going to take. And, and you know what? I mean, I, I've heard it all the time. Like I've, I've run a hundred miles. I've done 29 marathons. I've done five Ironman triathlons. And I hear people tell me all the time, well, I'm not a triathlete. Well, I'm not a runner. Well, I mean, no one ever told me I was a runner. No one ever told me I was a triathlete. Like I was held back in swimming lessons when I was young. And I mean, I, I never grew up like with a running background or anything. So it's not like anyone ever anointed me as a runner or anointed me as a triathlete. I just signed up for the races and figured it out and did it. And I'm not a writer. I mean, I slept through high school English class, literally. I was, like, I, I, was, I was a C student in school. So it's not like anyone ever kind of anointed me with, you are now an author and you're ready to be a best-selling author. It was just something I did and kind of the same thing with speaking. And I would just, I, I guess, compel everybody that's listening to this to really look at it. And, and I brought up the internal kind of self-talk and psychology. And I know that's a lot of what you teach people. And it's so crucial to the high-performance mindset is to just listen to what you are saying to yourself and how it is impacting either the actions you take or the actions you don't take, because it probably is. So. Mm, I love it. I love it. You know, so as people are listening, I'm sure that, you know, they're, they're thinking about ways that they limit themselves or the beliefs that they have that, that are limiting themselves. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Scott, in terms of, the next best best action to take? Like, what would you tell them to do in terms of, you notice the limiting belief, what do you do with it? 
Well, the, hard, the hardest part of anything is to just get started. So to, to just get started and to literally take one small step in the direction that, that you want to take. And I mean, I have no idea what, um, what might be paralyzing some of the people that are listening and, and maybe paralysis is a strong word. I don't even know, but what might be holding some people back, but I would say just don't overthink it and literally just do it. I mean, sometimes, you know, you've obviously worked with a lot of high level athletes and what they need to do when they're under the most intense pressure on the field of play is a lot of times they just need to get out of their own head and Absolutely. they just need to act. They need to act and react. And I think the same principles apply for us in our own lives. Like you don't need to go and research 20 different diets. If you want to lose 10 pounds, like just start eating better. Like today, like the next meal that you have, whenever you are listening to this, make it a healthy one. You know, you don't need to go and you don't need to do any more research. And, and the same thing applies for, for everything else in, 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 in business. It's just like that next action that you take, just get out of your own head, don't overthink it, and just take a positive step in that right direction. And then you just, once you can start doing that, I think, and you get a few things built up, you know, a hard, the hardest part of anything is getting started, but then momentum is also magic. And once you start getting into that momentum, it's so much easier to just continue it. And if you've taken a few of those positive actions by getting out of your own head, now you can just sustain it. And, and you can just keep it going forward. That momentum is magic. So it's just about getting started is the, is the most important step. So, you know, Scott, when you were talking about playing not to lose versus playing to win, how, how have you done that just in your triathlons and your marathons? And I know you did a hundred mile race. So, you know, mm -hmm. how do you think approaching your mentality in terms of playing to win? And I don't, I don't necessarily mean like, actually what trying to win the race right but, right but being your own best version of whatever that means for you mm -hmm. well I'll, I'll backtrack it back to the first Ironman triathlon I, I ever signed up for and to frame this for everybody listening like I don't I don't care if you ever do a, do a marathon or, or do an Ironman triathlon or write a book or become a speaker or anything like that it's not about that and I hope you're getting kind of the overarching messages of what I'm saying but I will never forget when I signed up for my first Ironman triathlon, I had never completed a triathlon before. I'd never done one. Wow. And I mentioned, I, I mentioned that I was held back in swimming lessons growing up. Like I wasn't allowed in the deep end of the pool because we called it the crawl at the time, but I was the kid that was afraid to put my head down in the water. You know, I just wasn't comfortable in it. I didn't have a bike growing up and you know, I'd, I'd started running a little bit. I'd done my first marathon, but I didn't have a background in, running or anything that way and I will never forget sitting down at I was actually personal training at the time and doing some sports psychology as well and I was working at um, it was Northwest Athletic Club at the time in St. Louis Park and I was sitting down at the computer in the trainer's personal trainer's office and I was getting ready to hit submit for to register for this Ironman triathlon and right as I'm sitting there kind of on the precipice of registering for this thing because some of my buddies were kind of pressuring me into doing it. They're like, oh, come on, Scott, let's do this. Let's do this. And I'm like, oh my God, what, what am I getting myself into here? But 
as I'm sitting there waiting to hit that last submit button, the play not to lose all of those fearful thoughts then started running through my head where it's like, I don't know how to swim. You know, I didn't have a bike growing up. I'm not a runner. I've never done a triathlon before. I just got out of graduate school and I'm really busy. So maybe I should just wait. Like, and, and what if I, you know, put myself out there and, and what if I, what if I don't succeed? You know, what if I don't make the time cutoffs? And, and it's like all of these things start running through your head. And then finally, I, I was literally shaking at the computer and I just kind of shook my head and just said, just do it. And, and, I, just hit, and I just hit submit. And then it was like this weight had been lifted from me in a way. And then it was just like, okay, well, now you just have to figure out how you're going to do it. You know, but I think it's, it's when we're at that point of, taking a bold action that you know it can be a triathlon it could be something in business it could be something athletics it it doesn't it doesn't really matter it can be in in multiple areas but when we're on the precipice of taking some massive action like that that we know can really benefit us that's usually when our thoughts can sabotage our behaviors or our actions and sometimes we just need to override those and we just need to hit submit and we just need Mm -hmm. to do it Good. That's, That's good. I, I love it. Yeah. So just do it and submit. You know, I, I wrote down on my notebook here that fear, doubt, anxiety, like that all represents playing not to lose, right? But yeah. action mm-hmm. is what you're saying and potential and, and moving forward with the vision is all about playing to win. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, I do, I would say of the t- different groups that I speak for, you know, my sweet spot is, is speaking to sales teams. And because I have a background in sales and whatnot, and you think about it from like a sales perspective as well. Well, what paralyzes a lot of people from even picking up the phone and making the calls and taking the meetings and and doing the contacts that are necessary in sales is they worry about none of us like rejection. None of us like being told, no, I don't want this or no, I'm not interested in that. So they don't take the action that they need to to be successful because each time that they pick up the phone or each time that they make contact, what they see on the other end of the phone or on the other end of the screen is somebody saying no. Rather than looking at it and the plane to win saying, you know what, what if my product or program or idea or service or whatever it is that you're selling can legitimately change this customer's life? Like if you think about it like that, and if you start saying, you know what, I'm looking at this positive outcome and I'm going to continually reinforce the positive of what could happen by me doing this rather than dwelling on the what ifs of, of the, the fear and failure and the playing not to lose, you know, I mean, it's just a reframing of the situation. Again, it's, it's common sense, but I can tell you not only from my own experience, my clients' experiences, but just a lot of people that I've seen, I've spoken with. It's, it's common sense, but it's not common practice Exactly for a, lot, for a lot of us. Yeah, and I think we might know it, right? We know, might know this works better to think about, you know, if our, what if our service can change people's lives, but it's hard to do in the moment, especially yeah. when you have the fear or the doubts or the anxiety Yeah. 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 Well, tell us, you know, Scott, how do you think that your degree in sports psychology really set you up for, you know, working with businesses and, you know, sales, sales teams, as as you mentioned, is your sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you think that transitions? Well, I I always just say sports psychology is, it's just like life psychology. It's just more specialized towards athletes. But I mean, all of the same things that high level athletes go through on their field of play, whether it's the court or the course or the field or the ice or 
the pool or whatever it happens to be. I mean, the same, the same goal setting, the same motivation, the same discipline and the routines and, and the grit. And I know you know about grit and beyond <laughs> grit, right? You know um, but yeah, exactly. But the grit and the resilience and the focus and the, uh, I mean, being able to get in the zone and, and different things, like all of those same principles really do apply to us getting the best out of ourselves. So I just think that it's, it's such a natural hand and glove fit to just take a lot of those same principles and to just pivot it into what we go through on a day-to-day basis. So I, I feel like it's, it's set me up phenomenally well to do what oh, I do. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I know when I heard you speak about a month ago, you were talking about seven C's of outperforming leadership. Yep. It, like, let's just dive into that a little bit. And, and to start off, tell us what you mean by outperforming leadership. Because I think, you know, all of us can relate to that in some way. We're, we're a leader if it's at work mm-hmm. or if we're actually an anointed leader or a leader in our family. But just, you know, mm-hmm. tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, and I think that's important for everybody listening to understand is one of the things I lead off with is, is every single person listening to this right now is a leader. Like, and there are two different types of leaders. There are emergent leaders and there are appointed leaders. And appointed leaders are the ones that have been given a title. Like you're a head coach, um, you're an athletic director, you're a, a VP of sales, or you're the head of the company, whatever it might be. Like you have this title that, and because of that, you have a certain amount of authority and you have a certain amount of influence over people. And is that a good thing? You know, yeah, it certainly can be, assuming that you use it right. But anybody can and is an emergent leader and emergent leaders are the ones that they're the players in the locker room where you might be the captain of the team or you might not be the captain of the team you might just be someone that you know what when the team isn't playing well or when the team is really in crisis um you're the one that everybody looks to and you're the guy that kind of rallies the troops and you're the one that elevates the play of others and you're the one that really emerges as the leader within that locker room And, you know, you can have a locker room in business, you can have a locker room anywhere, really, but you don't need to have a title to necessarily be someone that emerges as that leader and someone that can help raise the game of others. So I just think it's important for everybody to to know that. And you know what, as we kind of look out at, at the world, I feel like in this day and age, we need more people that are willing to step up, are willing to do it the right way, and are willing to lead others correctly and I, I guess the right way um, and to not be afraid to put themselves out there you know and to really want to step into that role as an emergent leader so it really what it centered upon was just I mean again kind of to tie in some of uh, you know Minneapolis is hosting the Super Bowl in February so it was tying in it was leading your sales and marketing team to the Super Bowl so it's basically a play on kind of, you know, you look at the great coaches or the great leaders of these sports organizations, like what do they do differently to year in and year out be able to get the best out of others? That's really what, it, you know, that's what I talked about. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I like what you said in terms of a leader raises the game of others that, you know, yeah. a leader isn't necessarily just focused on themselves, but they have a, a strong vision and are leading other people to, to raise their game. So mm-hmm. let's talk about a few of, of, of the seven C's that you talked about. Is there one that you'd like to start with? Um, well, I mean, the, the first one that I led off with was just consistency. 
And I think such a huge thing, if you're going to be a leader and if you're going to have influence over others, uh, you need to be consistent. And what consistency builds at the end of the day is it builds trust, you know, and I think consistency is just something, it's just showing up and it's, it's showing up the same way each and every day. And I know one of the people in the audience kind of asked the question, they're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an emotional guy, you know, and I wear my emotions on my sleeves a little bit or on my sleeve. Does that mean that, you know, I, I need to stop doing that and I need to be more consistent and more level as far as what I'm doing. And I said, no, absolutely not. I said, if you wear your emotions on your sleeve, that can absolutely be a good thing. But what matters is if you're going through anything emotionally, how much does that affect the way that you treat and the way that you act? I mean, the way that you treat others, you know, and, and kind of what you do with them. It's one thing to be emotional. It's another thing to be emotional and have that impact the way that, you know, you actually treat and, res and respond to other people. So I think consistency as far as how we show up, we all know it. We've all heard lead by example, but it's the absolute truth. A question that I ask myself constantly is if I'm ever asking a group that I'm speaking to or a personal client that I'm working with, is I always ask the question, am I asking them to do something that I would be unwilling to do myself? And if you are asking someone to do that, it's not saying that you do everything. You know what, if I'm working with a high level athlete, like I can't go and do some of the workouts that they're doing, I'd, I'd probably kill myself. But, <laughs> but the bottom line is like, if, if, if push came to shove, like do they know that you would be willing to get in the trenches with them, let's say, if you're, if you're really looking to lead. And you know, gone are the days of, um, I feel like leaders sitting in the big fancy corner office kind of perched above everyone else, like leading from above and telling people what to do. In our society in this day and age, it's much more of a, a leading by example and it's much more of kind of a community leadership um, and a feeling of, you know what, like I'm going to lock arms with you and I'm going to lead you out onto the field of play or the battlefield and uh, I'm willing to get in the trenches with you. So I think it all starts there, the leading by example and the being consistent. So good. And obviously both of us are hoping that the Vikings are in the Super Bowl <laughs> come February 5. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I, yeah I know. Seriously, don't, don't jinx it for us. Yeah, I won't. All right? I, won't yeah. I won't. But I think you're, you're spot on that, you know, high-level athletes and, and high-level coaches are consistently – consistently the same day in and day out, but they're also consistent with their routine and they, they do the things that are hard, even though they don't necessarily always want to, right? Like yeah. watching hours and hours and hours of film so that they're ready. Yeah. And I, I remember you gave an example of Bud Grant. He was a <laughs> long time Vikings coach. Yeah. I, I can't remember the specifics, so tell us about that. How was that an example of being a consistent leader? Yeah, so this would have been what was it, two or three years ago? It was when the Vikings were playing the Seahawks um, in their playoff game, and U.S. Bank Stadium was being built. So we were playing outdoors at TCF Bank, you know, where the University of Minnesota plays. And it was a brutally cold day. Yeah, like Again, minus playoff, So it was, yeah, it, it was, was so I, I, I know that, I know the temperatures were, were, you know, negative single digits and the wind chill, I think was 15 or 20 below or something like that. I mean, brutally cold game. And I think two or three weeks before that, we played the Seahawks and, you know, we'd absolutely just gotten killed by them and, and we weren't playing well and nobody thought that we had a chance and they were 
talking about, you know, can, can the Vikings handle the cold because Teddy Bridgewater is our quarterback and kind of small hands. And that's not a good thing when you're trying to grip the ball in cold weather and just all of these different things. I mean, no one was even giving us a shot and Bud Grant, I think he was in his mid eighties or so at the time. Um, and you know, legendary Vikings football coach, and he was getting ready to go out there to midfield again on this bitterly cold day to do the ceremonial coin toss to decide who's going to receive the ball and, and who's going to kick and what ends of the field you're playing at. And right before he goes out there to midfield to do the ceremonial coin toss, he takes off his, his parka and the coat that he's wearing. And he's standing next to Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL. And he take this off, takes this off and he hands it to him and says, here, son. <laughs> I love that he's calling the commissioner of the NFL son. But he, <laughs> he hands him his part and says, here, son, hold on to this. And, and he just said, and he's wearing nothing but a polo shirt on this bitterly cold day. And he just says, here, son, hold on to this jacket. He said, I want to show everyone that the cold isn't going to bother the Vikings. And he just, he literally, he, so he strode out there to midfield for the ceremonial coin toss and nothing but a polo shirt. The guy's in his mid eighties and it's at least 20 below wind chill. And it literally, I mean, the whole stadium just went nuts and it became this like social media sensation where it was kind of a, a Chuck Norris thing where everyone was like, Bud Grant is so much tougher than, than everyone else, you know, and it just blew up into this huge thing. But what it basically did is it was just a, a great example of, of leading by example and just saying, you know what, like, I'm going to show everyone here that the cold isn't going to bother the Vikings. And he didn't go out there in his parka and he didn't just say that from like heated mm. sweet, you know, press box or anything like that. He literally got out there and did it. And I think we can all learn something from that as far as the consistency and the leading by example and just saying, you know what, this is, this is who we are. Like, this is what we do. We're Vikings. We're going to go out there. We're going to play well. We're going to do it, whether it's 70 degrees and sunny or whether it's 20 degrees below and windy, you know, and, and this is what we do. And we played a great game. Really, we should have won. And who knows if it was because of Bud Grant, but I can tell you yeah. that it really set the tone, I felt like, for for our attitude and for a lot of the way that we play it. Absolutely. So, you know, I think what you're really saying is a leader has a really a big impact and he wasn't necessarily, you know, he wasn't the coach at the time, right? But still mm-hmm. one of the all-time best Vikings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and one of the, you know, I think one of the best metaphors um, mm. or analogies that I've ever heard is, you know, when we look at leadership, um, there are thermometers and there are thermostats. Like, have you heard this one? Maybe, but tell us. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, if you look at a thermometer, I mean, a thermometer is somebody that's just going to react and is just going to respond to whatever is going on around them. Mm. And then a thermostat is someone that actively sets the tone and raises or, I guess, cools the temperature as needed. You know, and I think when we look at us going out there and being leaders, it's actually something I think about a lot of the time, like just something as simple as if you walk into the locker room and you're talking to your team right before a big game or a big competition, or if you're walking in and you're, you're talking to your sales team or, you know, whoever you happen to be meeting with, like, are you the thermostat and are you the person that when you walk into the room, you, you brighten it or you really set the tone or you just you make that temperature whatever you want it to be or are you someone that just kind of reacts to the chaos and and the different things going on around you 
Mm, that's really good. That's really good. So the seven C's of outperforming leader, the first one is co consistent. What's a few others you'd like to talk about and share with us? Well, you talked about, um, I know you mentioned casting vision before, so that's one of them. Um, All right, cool. Yeah, I feel like casting vision is, is a huge thing um, in business and in athletics. You know, it's just, it's someone that a vision is looking out and it's, it's saying, you know what, this is what the bright, better future is going to look like. And I'm going to help us get here. You know, you're painting the picture of what a brighter, better future is going to look. I mean, how it's going to look. That's what you're doing when, when you cast vision. And then it's also another one is connecting to a purpose. So it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we want to go out, we want to win the Super Bowl. You know, and I brought this up a number of times. Okay, so it's one thing for if Mike Zimmer is going to say, you know what, I, we need to go out, we need to win the Super Bowl because then we'll be Super Bowl champions and that'll be awesome for the Minnesota Vikings. And it's another thing when you're connecting to a purpose and saying, you know what, our purpose and what we're going to do is we're going to win the Super Bowl because no team has ever won the Super Bowl at their home stadium in NFL history. And by the way, Minnesota has never won a Super Bowl in the franchise's history. So you guys are the team and you guys are the ones that are going to march out there and you're going to set the – you're basically going to make your mark in history by going and doing this. You know, again, it's, it's a very different kind of more aspirational language, um, that purpose and that vision. So I hope that makes sense. And then there's things about clarifying roles. Um, it was one of them where you're really looking at role clarity is letting each individual person know what they're responsible for and having clearly defined expectations, um, which not everyone always does, you know, especially in business. You'd be surprised how many people I meet with where I'm like, do you know exactly what your boss expects of you every single day they're sort of like well um i think so like I, I think i know what they want for me but they don't exactly know and i know the clip that i played with that was the gino oriama clip mm. um you know head coach for uconn women's basketball where he just talked about they asked him why uconn was so successful and why they won 100 plus games in a row and he literally just said, I mean, he went down the line and none of it was about, you know what, I expect our players to average this many points and have this many rebounds and steals and everything else. He said, no, he said, what I expect of people is I expect them to have a certain attitude. They're not too cool for school. They're people that support the team and, you know, they're people that are engaged. He talked a lot about body language and he just talked about, he, he literally talked about the controllables that we can all control and just conducting yourself a certain way um, in terms of those attitudes and those behaviors. And that's his expectations of, of players. And he just said, look, they know that this is exactly what I expect of them. And if they don't do it, they're not going to play. It doesn't matter how talented they are. It doesn't matter how many points they score. Um, they need to do these things, and that's what I expect. And then the second part of clarifying roles is role awareness, where every single person from the star athlete or the top sales performer all the way down to the, the last practice player or the person that, let's just say, is trailing behind, every person needs to know how valuable they are to the overall team's success. And I think when they know that um, – they feel like they're playing for something greater than themselves. And every single person has a role. 
you know, even the last practice player for the Minnesota Vikings will have a role in us potentially going on and being the first team in NFL history to win the Super Bowl at the home stadium. Like everyone is valuable. So those are just a couple of things. Really good. And, you know, I think especially on young sports teams, like high school teams, sometimes even college teams, you know, when the role awareness isn't there, athletes struggle because they don't necessarily know what, how, how they do connect to the bigger purpose and the bigger goal. Mm -hmm. You know, they just think that they're a body and if they're not a starter or someone who scores a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be the star athlete. You know, they, they do, but, you know, I, there are a couple different ways that you can look at it. You know, part of it is, is like anything else. I mean, you got to pay your dues and, and there are only a certain amount of, of, I guess, star athletes, let's just say on any given team. But, but then part of it is how you become the star athlete or how you become that A player, let's just say, is, is by paying your dues and by working hard. And when we talk about vision, you know, that's where it can be important too from a, from a coaching or from a leadership standpoint is if you've got somebody where, you know what, they're just underdeveloped and it's just not their time yet. Well, you got to be able to cast the vision of if they continue to put in the, the blood and the sweat and the tears and being in the trenches and the hard work and doing the things day to day that they need to do, even though they don't want to do them. Well, this is where you're going to be in six months. So this is where you're going to be next season. This is where you're going to be next year and paint that picture and cast that vision of where the person is going to be rather than having them dwell on where they are now and what they don't have. For sure. You know, and Scott, one of the, the C's that I really enjoyed that you talked about was the C of caring for others. Tell us about that one, how you think that connects with the other C's we've been talking about. Yeah, and I just, I think that's one that probably sounds painfully obvious to everyone listening, right? Okay, well, to be a great leader, <laughs> I need to care about others. Okay, it's like, all right, well, that's common sense. But you know, there's, there's a certain way that you can do that. And I mean, I think there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a stigma going on these days where, where you feel like, okay, everything has to be maybe too fluffy. Um, and everything has to be too kind of like, you can't coach people hard, you know, like you could back in kind of the, the olden days where, um, you would just be a little bit more of a hard nose and a tough coach. And I gave, you know, a couple of examples. I know I talked about Pat Summit, who, you know, was, um, you know, God rest her soul was, was an unbelievable coach and it wasn't that long ago. But the reason that I think caring is so important is because if people genuinely know that you have their best interest at heart, like you can, you can kind of coach them hard and you can challenge them and you can empower them to, you know what, I expect more of you. You know, like you, you can say things like that rather than, well, no, okay, we need to kind of tiptoe around this person or it just needs to be all positive all the time, let's say, and I can't, I can't challenge people. Um, you know, that's where that caring, I feel like really, really comes into it. And you know what? Empathy um, is a huge part of it too. And knowing that deep down, if you're not getting what you want out of a performer or what out, out of an athlete, let's say, um, they might be fighting some struggle or some battle that you know nothing about, you know, and it's literally just saying, Hey, what's, what's going on with you? Like you got something that you need to talk about. And I feel like those lines are, are getting blurred a little bit in a good way where the separation between professional and personal now is, is not as big as it used to be. Um, you know, we're, 
we're connected on social media. We're spending more time with our, with our bosses and with our team members outside of the office. And I think just opening up and actually getting to know people as people and also letting them know a little bit about you as well. I mean, I think there can be a certain amount of authenticity, certainly, and transparency that goes on in leadership that can really help connect you with people and can really help people know that, you know, what you really care about them. Absolutely. And you can tell by the way someone treats you, you know, if they care about you, if they're genuinely interested in who you are as a person and you're right, then, you know, you can take that feedback because you know that the person really has your best interests at heart. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. So Scott, tell us what you've been working on recently. Are there any new projects you got going on? I just published my ninth book. Um, I'll perform, yeah, wow. I'll perform the norm for student athletes. So it's geared towards mainly high school athletes, could be college athletes, and depending on the maturity level, junior high athletes as well. But it takes everything that it's kind of. Um, if I knew then what I know now, like it's, it's totally one of those books, but it, it's, it's a book geared towards helping student athletes perform better in sports and school and life. So it shows them not only how to take all of the things that I wish I knew back in the days when I was playing, um, when I was growing up and I was playing football, basketball and golf. Um, and it shows them how to use those things to not only be better in athletics, but also how to apply to academics and then how to just apply to general life. So it's, it's things like, you know, different chapters are owning and smashing your goals, uh, mastering motivation, um, building bulletproof resilience, harnessing your nervous energy, playing to win versus playing not to lose, getting in the zone, developing grit, uh, all of these different things. And there's a back-end program that goes with it that comes with some personal coaching as well. But the book, I think, is just going to be a phenomenal resource for a lot of people to just help them own the mental game of sports and then take it outside of sports as well. Nice. Well, tell us uh, where we can get that and learn more information about that. Uh, you can either go to scottwelly.com or just look me up on Amazon. Ah, nice, nice. Well, I want to make sure before we close to ask you a question about your 100-mile race. Mm, okay. <laughs> and the reason I want to ask you about it is because, you know, to be honest, like I can't even fathom running that far. And I have run uh, 15 marathons, you know, five mm-hmm. Boston marathons, but couldn't even imagine running a 100-mile race. You know, mm-hmm. tell us about when you decided to, to run that and why you decided to, you know, go for it. Well... Why did I choose? So I literally just published this on social media this morning because it was three years. It was three years ago yesterday that I signed up for the hundred miler. And then it'll be, you know, when it gets to June, it'll be three years ago from that date that I actually ran the hundred miler. So as far as why I did it, um, the social media post that I put out there was just when we look at our new year's goals or resolutions or whatnot. I mean, do you know what I got for running that hundred mile run? Like what I received afterwards for doing it? My guess is you got a medal or some kind of rock or something like that. I, so it was the Kettle Moraine 100. So I got a little tea kettle. That's a tea like kettle. A, a, cool. a, bronze, a bronze tea kettle and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you so, didn't do it for the tea kettle and yeah, a t-shirt. <laughs> exactly. So all, all of that, 21 hours and six minutes of running for a yeah. t-shirt and a tea kettle. And, you know, what I published on social media was just – 
you know, when you, there has to be a why underneath mm. what we do. There, there just does. And it's, again, not knowing people's goals. It might be to win a championship. It might be to earn more income or grow a thriving business. I have no idea. But if you really want to tap into what's going to keep you going and that underlying motivation, there just needs to be a why underneath it. And honestly, for me, it was just, I try and do things semi-frequently that I'm just going to be honest with you, that scare me to death, like that really do. You know, I know when I was giving the leadership presentation, I gave the example of the first time I got booked for a large keynote that was, you know, 500 plus people. And at the time, I'd never spoken for anything close to that. And I was just scared to death. Like it literally, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. It seemed really daunting. And the 100-mile run was exactly the same way, where I just said, I honestly don't know if physically and mentally I can do this thing, but kind of to go back to the playing to win instead of playing not to lose, I'm going to at least give it a shot. And what's the worst that can happen? I'm one of the 50% plus of the people that signs up and ends up not finishing it because those are the stats. Right. You know, more than half the field will drop out. but. I'm telling you right now, actually, you, because you've, I know your level of running and I know you've done a bunch of marathons, the way you get through a hundred miler is the same way that you build a championship team is the same way that you build a thriving business is the same way that you do anything. Like anytime I've ever run a marathon, it's not 26 miles, it's 26 one mile intervals. And all I do is try and just make it to the next mile. And then once you got into that one, you try and make it to the next mile marker. And that's how I run my races. And that's all I did for the 100-mile run. Even when I was at the last aid station and checkpoint at mile 96 and people were saying, oh, you're doing so well, you're in this, you're in 14th place and this is going to be your finishing time, I, I shut them down and I said, I don't even want to hear that because I've heard of a lot of people dropping out of the races at mile 95 and mile 98. I just said, I don't need to get to the finish line. I need to get to mile 97. And then when I get to 97, I'll worry about getting to 98. And I just broke it down that way. And I just continued to do that. And I mean, sometimes I look back on it and I'm like, how in the heck did I actually do that? <laughs> like, it seems, it, seems, it seems kind of surreal. Like it was just, you know, made up fantasy or something. But it's funny what you can get your body to do when you convince your mind of something like that. And when you really just focus on getting to that next check, checkpoint, taking that next action and just doing that next thing. And I, I'm hearing like a commitment to staying in the present moment, right? Like you didn't even think about the next mile or the next minute. You're just working to be where your feet are. So, you know, or where your feet were. So how did you do that? Besides like, you know, when, when the, <laughs> the people at the aid station were saying, you know, you're almost done. And that's yeah. probably the worst thing I think you can tell a runner in yeah. any kind of race because it, it can feel like a long ways to the finish line. But like, how did you do that? Yeah. Um, and well, and I mean, and that could be, I feel like the death of a lot of people that do ultra marathons too and do marathons in general, because I'm sure you've heard it. You know, you get to mile 20 or 21 and people start telling you you're almost there. You're like, no, no I'm not almost there. Like, I've got so a really long, painful five miles or 10 K left before I get to the finish line. Yes. And I, I think, you know, if you allow your mind to actually think that, especially when you're doing something like a hundred mile run, it just seems so daunting. Like mm. it seems so far away. 
that you just can't let yourself go there or, or you're never going to get there. So honestly, as far as what I broke it down to, I always try and we use the same language where we say control the controllables, but, but I say that all the time. And whether you're running a marathon or whether you're running hundred miles, the hardest part of anything is transitioning, especially in the later miles is transitioning from a walk to a run. So what I did when I was doing the hundred mile run, as far as staying in the present is, you know, it was up and down rolling Hills because it's all on trails the entire way. And I tried to run the flats and I tried to run the downhills and then I walked most of the uphills. And all I would focus on to keep me in the hyper present is I would literally just think of taking three steps to transition me because I learned that if I can take three steps transitioning from a walk to a run, well, now all of a sudden it's that transition's the hardest part. And even if I'm running at a brutally slow pace, like I've gotten into that run and now I can just maintain that momentum. So I was just hyper focused on just literally doing that and just trying to cover territory as efficiently as possible. Um, and that's just really what I thought of, you know, uh, and that ab above and beyond the nutrition, the hydration too, which you obviously you know, have to be paying attention to. Absolutely. But hyper focused on the present. I like the way that you said that 21 hours and six minutes. That's <laughs> phenomenal. Oh God. Yeah. I can't believe I did it. Seriously. <laughs> I really can't. Will you do it? Will you do it again? Or, you know, tell us what kind of what's next for you athletically. Well, I, I did rim to rim to rim two months ago through the Grand Canyon, uh, 47 miles. So top of the South Rim all the way down through the Grand Canyon to the top of the North Rim and then all the way back to where you started. So that, that was October and that was hard because it's hot at the bottom of the canyon and you've got a full mile of going down and then a mile back up and then a mile down and then a mile back up. <laughs> so, so that was pretty crazy. I don't have anything else, honestly, on the schedule right now in terms of uh, obscenely crazy things in, in 2018. Uh, I've got some trail races and uh, and some longer bike races and stuff like that now, but nothing like running 100 miles. And honestly, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever go back to that. I mean, it was it was such a hard thing physically and mentally. And it's not something, I mean, I do know people that go and they do those things somewhat frequently, you know, they'll, they'll do a bunch of hundred milers and like, that's their thing. For me, it was literally just a challenge. I just wanted to see if I could do it once, you know, it's not something that I ever thought I would do regularly. Um, so I don't know that I have the motivation to go back, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Who, who, who knows? knows? Yeah, exactly. I remember seeing you maybe three or four months after that, the hundred mile race and how, you know, it, you could still kind of feel that you ran it, right? So yeah. how, did, how did you kind of get through the, the recovery mentally? I mean, if you want to know the truth, I, I've always wanted to write a book about it. And I think I've got a little bit of PTSD from it. Yeah, like sure. I really do. And yeah. I mean, if for the listeners, if you don't know what that means, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And you normally hear about it from like people that have been in war and people that have been in really traumatic situations. <laughs> like it's weird to talk about a hundred mile run like that, but, but every race I've ever done in my life, I can get back to different spots during the race. And I can, I can think about, yeah, I remember being here and I was feeling that I remember seeing that. I remember like, I remember these different things and there are so many parts from that hundred mile run. I just can't get back to like mm -hmm. at, at all. Like I just, I, I can't get back there. It's almost like I've just blocked it out or something. So 
it's, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting thing to try and reflect back on. And yeah, I mean, as far as recovering from it, I mean, it was a full at the minimum 90 days of recovery. And every time that I would start to feel a little bit better, I would kind of come crashing back down. Um, And then I would just be on the couch for like two or three days after that. And then I would start to feel better. And then kind of the same thing would happen. And that happened for literally 90 days. And and the mental part of it, I've never, I've never really gotten back to a place where I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to do that again. It's just something (laughs) that is is, is hard to get back to. So I don't know. I think that's fascinating. I've never read anything. I've done some, you know, some research in ultra marathons and ultra marathoners. So I'd encourage people to reach out to you if they've had a similar experience and, and perhaps that could be the topic of your new book. (laughs) You know, how, how do you move forward from really stressful it just sounds like it was really a difficult race in general, right? It, it was. And I should also say this too, is that people do races for different reasons. And I mean, I obviously know that, or they do it in different ways, maybe I should say. And I know that you running at your level, like you're competitive and, and you go out there and you give it everything you've got. You know, some people will go out there and they will just literally, and it's, it's fine. It's not like one is better or worse, but they'll go out there to just complete the race or to just finish the race. But I'm wired with every time I go out there and race, I, I give it 110% and I try and finish it as fast as I possibly can. So out of, you know, the 200, I don't even know what it was, it might have even been more than that, 200 plus people, something like that, I ended up taking 14th place, which I thought was Amazing. phenomenal for being my first 100 mile run. But I really... I went deep in that well, like that well of kind of mental and physical reserve, because I really pushed myself to a point that, again, I didn't know that I was necessarily capable of getting to. And I think the deeper that you go, the longer it takes to recover. And I mean, the harder it is to ever think like, God, do I really want to go back? And do I really want to do that again? So, um, well, I think you and I race similarly. I uh, remember the Boston Marathon last April and I gave just every single thing I had in the race. And then, you know, after the race, my friends and my husband, we, they wanted to walk a mile and a half to, to this restaurant. And I was like, I can't walk. Are you kidding me? I just oh, yeah. gave everything in the 26.2 miles, and but I did it. But by the time I got to the restaurant, I was so exhausted, like uh-huh. emotionally yeah. exhausted because <laughs> I have to walk a mile, you know? <laughs> I hear you. I've been there too. Trust yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I've been there too yeah. many times. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your wisdom today and just like playing full out on this interview. And I want to commend you for all the awesome work that you do in terms of, you know, when you speak to your clients and business leaders and to athletes and coaches. And I want to um, just thank you for the good work that you're doing in the field. And the, this, is this, this is what I heard from this interview. These are sort of like my golden nuggets. So I just want to repeat them as a way to, to wrap up the interview. So I like how you talked about that, you know, that's not failure, it's just feedback and how you have approached your life that way. And it's allowed you to kind of what you describe as playing not to lose, but, but playing to win. And I liked our discussion about that and how we, we talked about how, you know, playing not to lose is really when you let the fear and the doubt and the anxiety take over, but playing to win is really when you're taking action. And, and you talked about how that's really important. And we talked about momentum is magic. I like that. And just like taking the next step forward, how self-talk is critical to the high performance mindset 
And then the last part about your 100-mile race and just being hyper-focused in the present. And I think that we can all learn to do that and approach the new year in that way. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, thank you, Sindra. And I guess I'll just, I'll flip it back on you and say that I'm uh, really inspired by the work you're doing and all the good that you're putting out in the world as well. So it's been a privilege to be on here. It really thank has Thank you. Thank you, Scott. So tell us where we can learn more about your nine books and connect with you on, on you know, social media. Yeah, on, on almost all social media, it's just at Scott Welly. So look me up there, whatever, connect with me, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, everything else, Twitter. I don't tweet much, but <laughs> I mean, you, you can find me anywhere on social media at Scott Welly or just scottwelly.com, S-C-O-T-T-W-E-L-L-E. Nice. And you can go to Scott Welly, and I know you, you have your nine books listed there, so you can mm-hmm. learn more about your speaking, coaching pro- programs, and, and your books there. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would encourage people to head over to Twitter or another social media channel and tell us what stood out to you about today's interview. And we'd love to hear from you and connect with you about any of the content that we talked about today. So again, it's at Scott Welly and then mine's at mentally underscore strong. So thanks so much for starting the new year off right, Scott, and joining us today on the High Performance Mindset. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at mentally underscore strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out drsyndra.com.